Amen. Good morning. If you turn your Bible to Exodus chapter 19, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. And uh, if you don't have one at home, there are some Bibles on the table in the back, so feel free to grab one. I'd love for you to have that on your way out. As many of you know, we have Bible studies starting tomorrow, men's and ladies' Bible studies. If you're not signed up for those, it's not too late. Uh, sign up in the back and uh, plan to join us tomorrow, 645. It'll uh, be a great time of uh, looking at God's Word and uh, just spending some time together. Exodus chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord had spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the edge of the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai. For you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest they, he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. We all know there's a difference between seeing something or hearing about something and experiencing it ourselves. Uh, this past week, uh, many of us saw images of the missiles that were sent to Syria, 100 missiles that were sent to rain down on Syria. 
You know, we've seen things like that. Maybe we've seen it with other wars like the Gulf Wars and whatnot. And we've seen all of these images of warfare. But I wonder what it would be like to actually experience those missiles. I mean, imagine if there was one of those missiles that landed in Pinewoods Park just a few blocks away. Imagine the sounds and the sights and the smells of what that would be like to experience something like that. Just seeing it on TV or hearing about it doesn't give us kind of a base to go upon how to, what that would be like. And I think that's kind of what Israel is experiencing. Now they've experienced a lot of the things that God has done. God has delivered them through the Red Sea destroyed the Egyptians. He sent all these plagues upon the earth, He's upon the Egyptians. He's provided for them manna and quail while they're in the desert. He's provided water from a rock. So he's done all of these wonderful things for them. But it's interesting that just before this, they're questioning even if God had spoken to Moses. And what that indicates is that maybe they thought, or at least some of them, had questions about whether God was truly with them whether God had really spoken to Moses. They'd seen a lot of things. They've seen kind of natural miracles, but they could think to themselves, well, that parting of the Red Sea, maybe it was the God of the sea who did that. How do we know it's the true God? How do we know it's Yahweh? And although they've seen all these things that God has done for them, they haven't experienced God in a true, undeniable, unmistakable way. And God says, I'm going to come to the people. I'm going to speak to them in thunder. And Moses, they're never again going to question whether I've spoken to you or not. And God says to Moses, I'm going to come and I'm going to uh, give you a promise of a covenant. He says, if you, you indeed keep my voice, obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Verse 5. And what's interesting is Moses tells the people that. He says, you need to obey the things of the Lord, and he'll make you a treasured possession. He'll make you a holy people. And they say, Okay. We'll obey everything that they said. Now, it's interesting to me that they would just agree to obey everything the Lord has said since just a few chapters earlier they're questioning at the, when they're thirsty, they're questioning, is, is the Lord really among us? It says in the text, Moses tells God, they're about to stone me because they're thirsty. And so they're questioning whether God is among them. We see just before this that Moses is having to deal with all these different disputes and quarrels. They're not exactly an obedient people. And yet Moses says, obey the Lord. And they're like, okay, we're going to follow him. We're going to do whatever it takes. I don't know if they really understood what they were getting into. I don't know if they really understood the God that they were about to encounter. You know, the conception of gods in pagan societies was this kind of idea that these gods kind of did their own things. They kind of reigned their own spears. They didn't really care too much about humanity. But if you wanted to appease them, you might do some sacrifices or do some special things for them. And then they might show favor upon you. So perhaps the Israelites see Yahweh the same way. Yahweh offers a covenant, offers to... Make him a treasured people, offers to be their God, to rescue them, to deliver them, to provide for them. And they're like, well, 
Okay, if we have to do a few sacrifices or do a few rituals, that'll be enough to appease him and then he'll be for us. But they don't know the God they're, they're going to encounter. This, this God, Yahweh, is unlike any other God. That he's totally and uniquely holy. That he's unapproachable. That he's a consuming fire. And they're about to experience him like they've never experienced him before. And it says in the text that they meet him as they're in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place where nothing grows. A desert, a wasteland. Just as an aside, that's a place where God often meets his people is in the wilderness. The place between slavery and the promised land. He meets his people in the wilderness. And though, because God is going to come... God instructs Moses, prepare the people for my coming. Even though they're not going to see him directly, even though they're not going to get that close to God, God tells Moses, tell the people to consecrate themselves, wash their garments, abstain from sexual relations, and be ready to meet with God. And Moses instructs the people not to come near the mountain, to even touch the bottom of the mountain, because if they do, they're going to be stoned or killed. It says in the text that if anyone touches the mountain, that they're to be stoned or shot through and no one is even to touch that person. And so we see that they prepare themselves and then God comes down on the mountain and He comes down with thunder and lightning with a thick cloud of smoke, a trumpet blast. It's kind of hard for us to even get our heads around what that must have been like. You know, just like, perhaps like bombs going off, like fireworks going off. And God meets the people and they see all these sights and these sounds and they're terrified at this God who is before them. And they get to understand that this God is so holy and so other that sin cannot stand in His presence. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with uh, the movie Peter Pan. It was my favorite movie. And so I loved everything related to pirates and swords and pirate ships, the whole deal. And uh, so my dad uh, decided he was going to build me a pirate ship. So he built me this wooden pirate ship that was, you know, pretty good size. I don't know, maybe 20 feet, 15, 20 feet by 10 feet. Uh, good size ship. And uh, I loved it. I enjoyed it. And then when we moved to our uh, new house when I was, I don't know how old, but when I was pretty young, they put it on a, uh, a truck and were able to move it to our new house. But over the course of time and because of the move, it started to show its age. And eventually it started to be a little tipsy so that it wasn't that safe to to, uh, go on. And uh, we decided to deal with it in the safest way possible to uh, pour gasoline on it and light it on fire. (laughs) I'm not sure exactly if we used gasoline. I think we did. But we took the precautions necessary. I took my garden hose out and I hosed down the fence that was near there to make sure it didn't catch on fire. And I remember, you know, I had never experienced what fire in that magnitude was like. I don't, you know, the only context I had for fire was a little fireplace or a little fire pit that you can just go right up to. But as we lit that on fire and it started to kind of take on a mind of its own, I remember standing back you know, maybe 20 or 30 feet with my little garden hose ready to protect, you know, protect it from going anywhere else. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, this is amazingly hot. I mean, if I go any closer than 
I'm at right now, I, I'm going to be burned. You know, I'm staying, and I'm standing way, way, way far back from the flame. And in the same way, God is a consuming fire. And God is so holy that He's telling His people, you need to stand back. Because if you enter into my presence, you're going to be consumed. Then God calls Moses up to the mountain. And he says, you just come up yourself. And he says, make sure that you don't allow the people to come and touch the mountain. Moses is like, you already said that. I've already, I've already done that. I've already made precautions. And God is still like, do not let the people through. Because if they touch the mountain, if they experience my holiness, a lot of them are going to die. So we see this scene of God meeting the Israelites on Mount Sinai in holiness as a flaming, raging fire, as an expression of holiness. But we live in a different time frame. We live thousands of years later. So how does this passage inform us today of how we live our lives as Christians? I would submit that this passage shows us that in order to understand and experience the grace of God, we need to understand and experience the holiness of God. To understand and experience the grace of God, we need to experience the holiness of God. In this passage, we see that God is so holy and so mighty that He tells His people, stand back, stay away, lest you be consumed. And that's what holiness deals with. Holiness means to be set apart, essentially. It deals with separation. That which is unclean and unholy must not come into contact with that which is holy. And there's all these complex rituals in the Old Testament. Laws related to purity and cleanness and uncleanness. And these things separate, these things demonstrate and are symbols of the fact that sin cannot dwell with holiness. And I think in our day, we need to have a healthy understanding of God's holiness and God's wrath against sin. And we need to understand what these Israelites experienced, that God cannot stand in the presence of sin or unholiness. Now, when we think about sin, I don't think we think about it always in the right way. We think about sin sometimes as breaking God's rules. And that, in a sense, is true, but I think that we miss a lot when we just think about it in that way. Sin is not just a failure to keep God's commands, although it is. We have this idea maybe that God just has these arbitrary laws that He puts in place. And He puts these laws in place to kind of test us. Some of us maybe think that He puts these laws in place to stifle our energy or to keep us from enjoying the good life or keep us from having fun. But the truth is completely the opposite. He puts laws in place so that we might experience the good life. So that we might experience joy. So that we might experience peace. The Hebrews have a word called shalom. Remember when I went to Israel as a child, um, I remember we having a wake-up call. I remember them calling, it was like 6 in the morning, and they're like, shalom, this is your wake-up call. And everything they say there, they say, shalom, how are you doing? And this idea of shalom ultimately means peace, but it kind of indicates a completeness or a wholeness. And so when God creates commands, when He gives us laws, they're not just arbitrary laws, but they're things that are to keep shalom, to keep peace, to keep completeness. 
And so, for example, God doesn't just say you shouldn't lie because lying is a bad thing to do. It's, he doesn't just make it an arbitrary law. He says do not lie because he knows the, that lying is going to cause destruction in relationships. He knows that lying is going to create chaos. He tells us don't commit adultery because he knows that if we do that, it's going to create chaos in our relationship. He tells us not to have premarital sex because if we do so, it's going to create chaos in our relationships. And so he gives us these instructions and these laws as an expression of his character so that shalom might be kept. So that we might flourish as human beings. Even the command to have no other gods before him. He knows that we will only find true life and true joy in him. He knows that we, when we serve other gods, it simply leads to chaos and destruction. And so, God gives us commands to keep the shalom. Cornelius Plantinga puts it this way. Sin is disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. God hates sin not just because it violates His law, but more substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. Indeed, that is why God has laws against a good deal of sin. God is forged shalom and therefore against sin. In fact, we may safely describe evil as any spoiling of shalom, whether physically, by disease, morally, spiritually, or otherwise. Moral and spiritual evil are intentional evil. That is evil that, roughly speaking, only per- persons can do or have. Evil is the spoiling of shalom. And so God is against sin because sin tears His world apart. It destroys relationships. It destroys the environment. It destroys our connection and our relationship with God. That's why... God is against sin because sin produces destruction. It produces chaos. And so in our natural state, God is separate from sin. He gives us a stiff arm, so to speak. He keeps us, clo- he keeps us far away from Him lest His holiness should consume us. So holiness tells us, stand back. Stay away. Don't come near lest you be consumed. But grace gives us a different message. Whereas at Mount Sinai, God said, don't come near the mountain. Don't even think about coming up the mountain. Grace came down from the mountain. In grace, holiness became flesh and lived among us. The light shined in the midst of darkness. The Holy One lived in the midst of, dif- in the wi- midst of wickedness. And what is interesting in the Old Testament, a lot of these purification rituals about these distinctions between unclean and clean is about containing that which is unclean. Because if something unclean touched something that was clean, it would make that clean thing then to be unclean. But we see in the Scriptures that something happens differently with Jesus. Jesus comes and He touches people who are unclean. The lepers. The sick. And rather than becoming unclean himself, his purity and his cleanness flows out to them. And he makes everyone who he touches clean. And yet, though Jesus is holy and pure in every way, and though he lived a sinless, perfect life, perfectly honoring to God and loving to mankind, he was sentenced to die on the cross. 
And in, the sen- in a sense, on the cross, God gave Jesus the stiff arm. He told Jesus, stay away. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him sin who knew no sin to be sin for us. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us. He took all of our sin and all of our guilt upon Himself. And on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, why have you left me? Why have you said, stay away from me? And the wrath of the holy God of Sinai fell upon Jesus. But in that event, Jesus paid for all the sins of mankind. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, grace has a different message than holiness. Holiness says, stand back, stay away lest you be consumed. But grace says, come near that you might find life. Hebrews 4.16, the writer writes, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to, to help in the time of need. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Grace says, come to me and find life. Because Jesus came down from the mountain, because He came down from the glory of heaven, we can go up the mountain. Because He came down from heaven, we can experience what it's like to live in the presence of God. Just take a moment and let that sink in. The God who appeared on Sinai in thunder and lightning and smoke and an earthquake, whose voice thundered from the mountain, He is the God that we can call Father. He is the God who we can call out any, call on any time, day or night, when we need Him. He's always available to us. That God who was so unapproachable and so, so holy and so pure that the Israelites couldn't even touch the mountain lest they be consumed. We can come into His presence and call out to Him anytime, day or night. That's what grace is. Grace that calls sinners near His throne. There's a man named Timothy Jones, and he wrote a book called uh, Proof with another author. And in that book, he shared a story that illustrates what grace looks like. He uh, decided he was going to, him and his wife decided they were going to adopt a child. And uh, the child that he adopted, a daughter, um, she had been previously adopted by another family. And this other family, for whatever reason, didn't understand this idea of adoption or bringing in a child into their family. And so they treated her differently than they treated their own biological children. So they would go to Disney World, and what would happen was they would leave their adopted daughter with a friend, and they would only take the biological children to Disneyland. And this daughter, she thought to herself that it was because there was something wrong with her, that she had done something bad, that she wasn't allowed to go to Disney World. After some time, she got readopted, and uh, Timothy Jones and his family adopted her. And when he had found out what happened, he decided he was going to take her to Disney World. And so the next time he had a speaking engagement, he planned for his family to go to Disney World. 
And he had set everything up. He had gone to Disney World with his other children a number of times. And so he had everything planned out. And he thought he had dealt with all the details of everything that he would need to figure out. But shortly before they went to Disney World, his adopted daughter started acting up. Started doing all these crazy things. Started just stealing stuff, like stealing food. When she could have just asked for it and they would have gave it to her. She just started telling all these lies that were just unnecessary. Where It would have been just easier just to tell the truth. She started saying all these insulting things to her sister. And she just started acting up and acting up and acting up. And then a couple of days before they were about to head to Florida, Timothy pulled his adopted daughter aside, put her on his lap after another one of these episodes. And she cried out and said, I know what you're going to do. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? Now, Timothy says, well, he said he was thinking to himself that that thought hadn't even crossed his mind not to take her. But now that she was acting up and being so bad, he was thinking to himself, well, maybe I shouldn't be taking taking her. And he was tempted to say to her, if you don't straighten up, if you don't start behaving, you're not going to go to Disney World. But he didn't say that. He, He said to her, are you a part of this family? And she nodded. He said, then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and wrong, but you're a part of this family and we're not leaving you behind. She still acted up after that. But then they go to Disney World and uh, they do all the Disney stuff, stand in line, you know, with all the heat and all that stuff. All the fun stuff, the best things in life. And then after the day... They go back to their hotel, and this daughter was different. She wasn't acting up anymore. She was kind of weepy. He describes her as being pensive, exhausted. And then when it came time for bed, Timothy went and he prayed with her, and he asked her, so how was your first day in Disney World? He describes what happened this way. It says, He says, she closed her eyes and snuggled into her stuffed unicorn. After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. That's a picture of what grace is like. Holiness says stand back. In God's holiness, he should turn us away. But because of his love for us, because of grace, he says, come near. Be a part of my family. Find your hope. Find your joy in me. In order to understand the grace of God, we need to understand the holiness of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love for us. We thank you, first of all, that you are holy. That you are completely pure. That you're given to justice that you don't do anything that's not in accord with your justice but we also thank you for grace we thank you that in grace you came near that you came down from the mountain to pay the penalty for our sins to atone for our sins so that we could have a relationship with you we thank you that even though we're broken even though that we have things that we've done wrong in our life 
That still because of your love for us, we can enter into your presence. We can become a part of your family. Lord, I pray for anybody today who doesn't know you, God. I pray that today would be the day that they turn from their sins and put their faith and their hope in you. Lord, for those of us who are believers, maybe we've been believers for just a short time or maybe we've been believers for years and years. Lord, I pray that we would never get over grace. We never get over what you've done for us and the love that you've shown us. And because of what you've done for us, Lord, I pray that we would show grace to others. That we'd be loving and graceful people. That we wouldn't have a spirit of superiority or holiness that says stand back, but a spirit of grace that says come near and find what we found. Lord, we thank you for all that you, that you do for us and all you're going to do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.